This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 19th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Zoning is largely a local concern, but there's no reason it has to be, especially when you consider how much economic expansion might be left on the table when NIMBYs, or those who chant, not in my backyard, control land use. Emily Hamilton blogs at Market Urbanism. We spoke last week about states, zoning, and economics. We've discussed this before, but... uh, there is this fight that seems to exist between local governments and states over how to plan. Um, how do local communities think of zoning? Do they view it as this is our this is our place? We're going to set whatever rules we want, and the state doesn't have any role in making that those kinds of decisions. There's some variation across states, but in general, that's exactly right. Local governments very closely guard their right to regulate land use and determine the types of development that will be allowed within their jurisdiction and exactly where within the jurisdiction that type of development will be. All right. So the natural libertarian impulse is to say, well, look, as as long as we can move planning of any variety from the feds to the states, that's probably better. If we can move planning from the state to the local community, that's probably better. In in many ways, it lowers the exit costs for people who don't like the regulatory regime that they're uh, living in and they can more easily move from one regime to another and people can vote with their feet and decide, well, I don't like this package of services and goods and regulations. I'll move over here. Um, but why is that not necessarily the appropriate way to think about things like zoning where local governments have a lot more, it seems, power or do a lot more regulating than states do? The American system of federalism is designed to promote better policy outcomes over time through that model of Tebow competition where people can leave jurisdictions that aren't providing the best policy environment for their quality of life or business opportunities. And you're right that libertarians tend to have a preference for localism and devolving policy decisions to the lowest level of government possible. But in the case of land use regulations, people are always free to leave the jurisdiction that they're currently living in within the U.S. But because of local restrictions on building new housing, they're not necessarily free to enter the jurisdiction that's providing the policy and economic environment where they want to live. Um, William Fischel, who wrote that book, Zoning Rules, which is an excellent book if you care about uh, zoning. He refers to people not as homeowners but home voters. And why not let local people contribute in, in a way that they'll definitely have an impact uh, whereas the state, state uh, government is often far away and isn't going to be concerned about local uh, demands. Why shouldn't local people be able to have that more powerful voice in setting the rules for how development occurs? Yeah, Fischl coined the term home voters because of the really outsized influence that homeowners have on local policy decisions. 
homeowners are more likely to stay in the same jurisdiction over time relative to renters. And they have a huge portion of their financial wealth typically tied up in their house, which is tied to that same jurisdiction. The problem is that the policies favored by these home voters comes at the expense of allowing new people to build homes and enter that jurisdiction. So there's a huge unseen cost when home voters control the housing supply in their jurisdiction in terms of preventing new residents from moving in. And policymakers tend to support this outcome because the current home voters are the people who voted them into office. And because of the huge incumbent advantage, they're likely to stay in office. But bringing new residents into that pool of voters could change their future outcomes. Uh, You write here at Market Urbanism, policymakers' incentives for blocking development are greater the smaller the region they represent. Is that – why is that? Well, you might find mayors uh, and city council members in prosperous communities who are very happy with the things, the, the way things are in their jurisdiction, and they're not eager to see change of any kind in terms of new residents coming into the jurisdiction, or they might not even be concerned about economic growth, particularly because things are so good as they are. But as you move up to higher levels of government, you're not going to find governors or state legislators who are unconcerned with economic growth or population growth over time um, because you're getting a more diverse pool of people that they're representing and uh, homeowners aren't able to organize as easily. Yeah, but you you have this uh, situation where you have local homeowners or home voters who would like to have a decision. They own this piece of property. They are concerned about its value over time, about leaving an inheritance or having this as a uh, nest egg for their own retirements. And the very notion of transferring this authority from their local community to the state, it's just a political non-starter. In many cases, yes. uh, Home voters might be more concerned about their property value than almost any other issue that local government deals with. But we are seeing some experimentation with states stepping in and putting limits on how much local policymakers can restrict property owners' rights to use their land as they see fit. So what are the economic costs of having zoning primarily being done by these little patchwork communities around the United States instead of at the state level? The cost of land use regulation is really gaining a lot of attention among high-profile macroeconomists who are attempting to measure these costs. One estimate by Chang Tai She and Enrico Moretti estimates that the cost of land use regulations is over a trillion dollars each year in lost output, whereas if the most productive places in the country allowed more people to move into their jurisdictions, we could see people uh, placing into higher paying and more productive jobs. And so how that actually plays out, I assume, is one – businesses wanting to locate in a certain spot but discovering that zoning will prevent prevent them from locating there where a workforce might be able to uh, immediately be available to their uh, 
their organization, but also for organizations that already exist in an area, it's almost impossible to attract or it's very, very expensive to attract workers. Silicon Valley seems to be the best example of that where it's so expensive to live there that uh, the price of that labor, those inputs are much higher. Is that about – is that most of it or am I missing some of it? That's right. Uh, San Francisco and San Jose are the two most productive cities in the country. But over the past couple of decades, they've experienced slower population growth than the country as a whole. So we would expect in a freer market that people would be moving in large numbers to these places where the highest paying and most productive jobs are located, but we're seeing the opposite. Are there states that have made a very clear statement about uh, their prerogatives with respect to, to zoning and we can sort of see the results versus other states? Typically, uh, some, some of the states that are thought of as having the largest involvement in uh, land use preemption are Washington and Oregon. And while we are seeing um, high housing prices in their productive cities, relative to California, which has historically not used state-level preemption, prices are lower in Washington and Oregon, and we're seeing a higher rate of housing construction. Within the past couple of years, California has stepped into this role of preempting local land use regulation. They recently passed a state law that sets limits on how much local jurisdictions can regulate accessory dwelling units, which is when a homeowner builds a small uh, mother-in-law suite or small second home on their property. And uh, they recently passed a state law that requires jurisdictions that are housing constrained to streamline their approval processes. So they, th this is a situation where uh, local communities uh, would essentially be triggered into uh, having to comply with this. That's right. Yeah, the state sets definitions of what housing constrained jurisdictions are and that's where those rules are applying. All right. So if, if a if I'm a governor or a the president of the Senate in my state, what do I – I'm concerned about economic growth. I'm concerned about tax revenue. I'm concerned about uh, attracting investment. What are the, what are the po specific policies that states ought to be adopting in your view that would provide the biggest punch for econ better economic performance? Legal scholar David Schleicher has come up with a suggestion of zoning budgets, which would uh, require jurisdictions to allow a certain amount of population growth and to plan for that certain level of population growth over time. And I think that's a good approach because it gives a lot of freedom to jurisdictions to decide what this new housing growth is going to look like. But it means that jurisdictions can't simply say, we're not going to allow for any new people to live here. And um, that approach at the state level provides a way for state policymakers to require that their jurisdictions comply with the growth targets that they have in mind. And it requires politically connected people in those local communities to make really hard decisions about whether they want this development or that development and not, not whether they're going to prevent them altogether. It does. Yeah. And it could certainly have some unintended consequences, whereas the um, most politically well-connected neighborhoods in 
those jurisdictions still block development where they live. But um, it, it would at least um, minimize the macroeconomic effects that we're seeing of land use regulations. Emily Hamilton is a policy research manager for the Mercatus Center. She blogs at Market Urbanism. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.